0: Welcome to our Founders Lecture Series. In 1982, Inabara began classes in Bengal with just 86 students and 11 staff. Fast forward 40 years and the school has experienced incredible change and growth, welcoming almost 1,200 students and more than 150 staff each day. This series honours a small group of pioneers whose vision led to what Inabara has become today. And this year, we explore the theme of art, beauty, and the transcendent. In these live recordings, you'll hear a range of special guests, as well as Innerborough's principal, Dr. James Peach. We hope you enjoy. Our lecturer this evening, Dr. Mark Stevens. Mark has spent much of his life exploring theological themes to do with creation, new creation, and the importance of the arts within contemporary culture. And more broadly, he has also explored how the arts feature in the theological narrative within which we locate ourselves as followers of Jesus. And I've heard Mark speak in a number of different contexts, and each time I've been challenged to think anew and just reflect on how God is working in this world. Earlier this week, actually, Mark spoke to a number of our students and our staff as part of the uh, Bible Society's masterclass for young Christians in Chatswood. He has the capacity to connect with a wide range of different audiences. In a former life, when he was working at Wesley Institute, then Excelsior, he taught theology to dance students. A challenge, no doubt, but one that makes him eminently qualified to speak on tonight's topic of stage or stream, why the life performance still matters. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Mark Stevens.
1: Thank you, James. It's been a big week. I've talked to lots of different people this week, and I just sometimes need to make sure that I know which audience I'm speaking to. So if I start talking to Yuffie, just let me know. But then I had CPX that night. Anyhow, it's been a great week. I'm so thankful for the invite from Inner to join you on this evening. And it's a delight to share a series with Dr. Greg Clark, and Reverend Dr. Michael Jensen. I'm aware that I can't actually match their talents, but I'm blessed to just share a bill with them. I'm sure that Greg and Michael will give you perspectives that are rich in theory and in practice, but I fear I won't be able to match them on the theory always, but I do intend to give you some reflections upon my experience and the things that have kind of emerged from me in the last decade or more. And my talk for you tonight is about the value of the live performance, that joyous experience that we surrendered for two years in a pandemic, of being in the same house, the same bar, the same community centre, the same stadium, of encountering art in the flesh. Live performance is when we circle a date in the calendar, or who am I kidding? type it into our phones. Live experience is when we surrender ourselves, body and soul, if we are willing, to a creative performance. It's those moments where you won't be able to switch channels. You won't be able to skip tracks. You won't be able to pause and rewind. You'll just have to go with the flow. And then you'll give them an hour or two or three of your time. And it's quite poignant for me that the final event I did before the first declaration of the pandemic was to see the wonderful Patty Griffin live at City Recital Hall in Sydney. I can't remember anything else I did in that preceding week before the announcement of the lockdown, except for trying to buy toilet paper. But I haven't forgotten watching Patty Griffin. I haven't forgotten the meal I ate that evening with long-term friends. I also remember that in June, 2021, just before the second New South Wales lockdown, I saw Hamilton live. Now, this time I took my wife and kids. I remember where we ate. It wasn't very nice. I remember the foyer. And of course, I remember the room where it happened. And then Sydney lockdown again. Since then, I've not actually seen another paid live performance. And I'm not sure I want to because I don't want us to go back into lockdown again because there's too many bad associations. But why does the live performance matter to us? What does it tell us about the importance of art? As I said before, I come at this question from a very particular location. My own skills and abilities in dance and drama and music are modest. Let's just say I peaked in high school. 1991, the chorus line for the Merry Widow. I was brilliant, but the pressure cooker of fame was just a little bit too much for me. My own skills and abilities did peak in high school, but I still performed. I still performed and I loved it. And I can still remember something of those rehearsals in musical theater to this very day. Because during those high school music, dance, drama productions that I did, something was tapped into that was deeply human within me, even though I am thoroughly ordinary in my talent. Now, many years on, my training is as an ancient historian, my expertise is in early Christianity, and my present job is teaching in a Christian theological college, helping people understand and preach the New Testament. Why am I here? Like, really, why am I actually here? Maybe you too will be asking this before the evening is out. But nevertheless, I'm here because for a blissful decade of my life, between 2009 and 2019, I was on the faculty at a place called Wesley Institute, now called Excelsior College. Now, although that college now teaches across a range of educational disciplines, it was founded as a Christian performing arts college, Birth to teach dance, drama, music, graphic design. And part of my job at Wesley was not to thankfully teach them dance and drama and music, that wouldn't help them at all. But I was there to teach performing artists theology and how to read the Bible. Now I wanna stress these were performing arts students, not fine arts students. So these were not people who were rushing up to me to ask me about Plato's vision of aesthetics or or, or the philosophy in Terence Malick films. These were young people who wanted to sing, they wanted to dance, they wanted to act, they wanted to play, they wanted live performance. They didn't want existential chats in the wine bar. You know what I'm saying? Now, please do not hear me saying these students were dumb, but their hearts and minds and bodies were oriented to the stage. And it was my privilege to share my life and their life for 10 years as we learnt the Bible together and learnt theology. And in some respects, they taught me more than I ever taught them. And when people asked me what my job was, I explained my job is to show how theology unleashes creativity and restrains idolatry. I wanted them to see how the Christian faith could cheer them on and also give them a vision for how art could be used, not abused. And all of that preamble is designed to say that I come at this space tonight as a theological academic, but one who learnt on the job. Everything I know, I really learnt in the context of experiences together with performing artists doing performance degrees. All of which begs the question, why would you do performing arts for a degree? I'll ask it again. Why would you do performing arts for a degree? Maybe we can begin to answer that question by asking another one that was once asked of me. What's the difference between a music degree and a large pepperoni pizza? You can feed a family of four with the pizza. (laughs) You know who told me that joke? A musician. But it puts its finger on an elephant in the room, doesn't it? Which is that art is usually useless. Now, I'll qualify that as we go on. But what I want to essentially say to you is that is the initial frame that we have for it. For 10 years, I stood in front of tertiary students who had very little chance of ever making any real significant money from their craft. We never lied to them, but most in the room had very realistic expectations about their prospects, even as they hoped for the best. Those degrees and those students doing the degrees were, if you like, an affront to the standard logic of the Australian tertiary education system. Forgive me for my cynicism, but Australian higher education is ruled by a thoroughly market logic. The Japanese-American artist Makoto Fujimura says in his recent book, Art and Faith, ever since the Industrial Revolution, how we view the world, how we educate, how we value ourselves has been all about purposeful efficiency get it done, get it done quickly and get a job. That's higher ed in Australia. And I know there are a thousand counter examples that you know, but it's tough to displace that fundamental utilitarianism that drives Australian higher ed. More than anything else, tertiary education is a credentialing factory in Australia. And within that logic, I taught students whose entire existence was according to that logic, a waste of time. Some had parents who said that. Some had friends who said that. Some had churches who said that. Some had a culture who said that. The performing arts is a waste of time and yet they came year after year and spent years honing their craft. Now my guess is that for some of us in the room, we don't actually realize how long it takes to get any good at something like acting. Because my acting students weren't like I imagined, which is you just walked in and kind of bit of verve, bit of life on stage and everyone thinks you're awesome. These guys did voice class. They did movement class. They got on gym mats and learned how to do forward rolls. They did heightened emotion classes. They were always reasonably disturbing for the rest of us in the room. <laughs> they learned how to scream in such a way that you don't blow your voice out because if you're a theater performer and you're doing a hundred performances, you can't get to performance three and go, I've got no voice left. These are things I never knew you had to learn and a thousand other things besides. When my drama students were in a performance week, they would spend all day in a classroom and then all evening in the rehearsal space and the performance space and then crash out exhausted for a few hours. My dance students would train in the classroom for more than 30 hours a week. I was discussing just before we started tonight that they're like a rugby league team in terms of their injuries. Dancers are the most physically crushed people I've ever seen because they push their bodies to the limits to create astonishing beauty. These are people who invest far more than I ever did in my history degree and yet we don't honor them. And they did this for enormous crowds 50 patrons or less. Because of the wonders of social media I can still follow the lives of some of my students. Some of those dance students now run dance studios. Some are full-time raising children, some are working in corporate, some are working in hospitality. To my limited knowledge very few of them have become famous or influential or making megabucks. The one who did actually crack through made it very high up on a television show eventually found that the kinds of gigs that she was gonna get were gonna become crushing to her values and actually moved into a completely different field where she taught young people how to dance. In drama, I know of a few who have made feature films or starred in a successful television series, but I can count those successes on one hand. Most of my drama students that I taught are still doing it, but in community theater. They're rocking the suburbs for small audiences. Some of my musos run music schools and some play gigs at an RSL. Some just help out every other week at church. Basic point, I don't actually know that many people who are famous. I don't know that many people who've made incredible amounts of money or are critically acclaimed. And so was it all just a waste of time? How you answer that question will tell me something of what you think about art. Because for many people, art can only be valuable if it's exceptional. Ordinary art is oxymoronic, because why would you bother doing something ordinary in the artistic space? Art is either extraordinary or it is nothing at all. Hence, the perceived value of art is often justified on the basis of one of two categories. Those two categories are high culture or pop culture. High culture is the art of the elites. This is where the art is valuable because it's so pure, so rare, so outstanding. It's the world where the rich benefact some elite gallery, where the theatre performance happens on Broadway, where we sip champagne and we make nice clucking noises in the foyer. Such art is expensive, often unpopular and often incomprehensible. The great apostle of high culture was the literary critic and English poet, Matthew Arnold, who once defined true culture as a pursuit of our total perfection by means of getting to know on all the matters which concern us, the best which has been thought and said in the world. Such art is valuable because it ennobles us. It perfects us, supposedly. By definition, the vast majority of artists cannot attain to such a status. The logic of high culture is that there must be losers. Many, many, many non-elite creatives who form the black backdrop against which the individual stars may shine. Yet to be a loser is ultimately pathetic in that world. It's like a swimmer who comes forth at the Australian National Swimming Championships. Their job is to make the champion look great. They're incredible at swimming. We will never remember them. All we care about is the great one. That's what high culture tells us. The logic of high culture is that unless you are absurdly gifted, absurdly gifted, don't bother. But that in its own strange way is strangely utilitarian. If you think about it, because the art of high culture becomes useful because it perfects us. Whereas ordinary or mundane art in our eyes is useless because it's naive. It's unsophisticated. Art is either extraordinary or it is nothing at all. Because there's another category which legitimates art in our culture, the category of popular culture. Now, although the high culture folks don't like the pop culture folks, you're allowed to be popular, even if you aren't the best at it. If you somehow manage to become wildly popular, well, that will make it all worthwhile as well. There is a utilitarian edge to the pop culture legitimation of art as well. Popular art is valuable because it's entertaining. It gives me something to do, it gives me something to stream, it gives me something to whatever, I'm bored, I need something, Ah, oh, you need to spark joy for me, Marie Kondo style. So art is either extraordinarily popular or it's nothing at all. Now be honest, when you saw the title for tonight's talk, the value of the live performance, what image came to mind? Did you imagine a piece of elite drama playing at the State Theatre or Broadway? Did you imagine a stadium concert with U2 or Ed Sheeran? Did you imagine a small gig at a pub? Or did you imagine your friend's piece of experimental theatre, which will play for three nights and have ticket sales totaling 40? See, in my job at Wesley, I saw probably bordering on a hundred performances of dance, drama, and music across the years the vast majority of which were watched by family, friends, and lecturers. Is any of that valuable? According to high culture, probably not. According to pop culture, definitely not. On either metric, such art constitutes, and I quote, not having made it yet. But the remainder of this lecture is gonna start from this basic sentiment. Live performance matters, no matter what the size of the crowd, or the elite circumstances of the venue. Because within the Christian imagination, a dance student does not become or attain to being an artist when they make it big. An actor isn't made when they step on the Broadway stage. They're an artist already. Most art is a little thing done well. Most of life is little things done well. Those performances I saw with me and 10 others, that was art as much as seeing Van Gogh in the National Gallery. Why would I say that? Because in the Christian imagination, art does not belong to an elite creative class. Art is not the rarefied commodity of the honourable and the great. Art is a part of what it means to be human. And in turn, that helps explain why live performance matters so much. To understand this, I'm gonna explore three essential aspects of a Christian account of art, each of which are rooted in a Christian theology of creation. Now, the Christian idea of creation has often been reduced to a science and Christianity debate. Now that might be an important issue, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not the only issue, nor is it even the most important issue in the Christian theology of creation because a Christian theology of creation probably has more to say about art than it does about science. Tonight I want to focus on three things that emerge from a Christian account of creation, the importance of the body, the democracy of creativity and the goal of community because each of these gives us an insight into why live performance matters so much to us and why as much as technology is wonderful, it'll never quite match it. I begin with the importance of the body. Now within the Christian story, embodiment is celebrated. This may come as something of a surprise given the regular portrayal of Christian faith within popular culture because Christians are often caricatured as suspicious of bodily pleasure. The great pop culture icon of The Simpsons, Ned Flanders, the most archetypal Christian through the 90s and 2000s, is someone who was deeply suspicious and tortured to a certain degree by bodily pleasure even though it was revealed at times he had an amazing body. (laughs) People who are fearful of the sensual, that is what Christianity is often portrayed within popular culture. Sensual delight in our culture is often characterized, therefore, with the language of transgression. Have you noticed this? Tastes so good it's sinful. Think about that and what that tells you about embodiment and godliness. But that is actually counter to the creation story of the Bible, which couldn't be more earthy if it tried. Because in Genesis 1, God's evaluation of the physical world is uniformly good. As each new material reality is brought into being, it's all good. It's very good. Then in Genesis 2, we get a different kind of creation narrative, a second angle on the creation story, one which focuses in tight on the formation of human beings. And in this account, human beings are divinely formed from the earth. Humanity in this story is animated dust. And even the name Adam is a play on words with the Hebrew word for ground, which is Adamah. He's therefore the one who is designed to work with the earth, who comes from the earth, who is an earth creature, which is why someone like John Schneider says the following. He says in his book, Godly Materialism, itself a provocative title, human beings are earth beings of, by, and for the earth. We are fashioned from the earth to live upon the earth, to dominate, cultivate, and care for the earth, and to use and enjoy the fruits of the earth, it is true that we are more than mere bodies and that we are also spiritual beings. For the ancient Hebrew, life apart from the body was not life at all, but mere existence. The quintessential vision of life in its full expression is the physical person in the garden of life. Across the entirety of the Christian story, embodiment is part of what it means to experience the fullness of humanity. So at the center of the Bible, The rescue of humanity comes by God, not rescuing us from our bodies, but rather God sending his son to become human for us and for our salvation. Jesus is the incarnation of God, the infleshing of God, or as one of my art students so wonderfully summarized it to me once, God in a bod, not what I'm gonna use in my theology lectures. And indeed the pinnacle of salvation The completion of the rescue plan is the resurrection of the body, which begins of course with Jesus's resurrection of the body. So the Christian vision of the future is one in which embodiment is perfected, not rejected. The body from beginning to end is vitally important. There is no fullness of humanity without embodiment. Eyes have been given that can see beauty, ears have been given, that can hear harmonies, tongues have been given with remarkable capacities to taste flavor, noses to smell fragrance, hands that can feel textures, and whole bodies that can move in gestural patterns that communicate. This fundamental affirmation of embodiment includes us into several things which are relevant to our topic tonight because first, biblically speaking, being face-to-face with someone is the preferred mode of human experience. Being face-to-face with someone is the preferred mode of human experience. Hence, you have little moments like this in the Bible. 2 John 12, not something you'd normally see on a Kurong poster. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face-to-face so that our joy may be complete. In the Bible, those letters that we have are a substitute for presence, but they actually, if you read between the lines, express a longing for presence. The Christian scriptures always breathe this sense that fullness of human interaction happens when bodies are in the same room. So think for a moment, the central location and metaphor for relationship throughout the entirety of the Bible is the dinner table, which is an overwhelmingly earthy and bodily experience. We eat together, we ingest together, we talk with one another face to face, and we talk so much better than when we're talking disconnected online. There's something about being in the room together. This comports with our intuitions. Intuitively, we sense physical presence takes things to another level. Even if it's inarticulate and we can't articulate why, we just know in our bones that full-bodied presence is preferable, which is why border closures were so hard. It's why having dinner with your friends on Zoom in the corner was so hard and so thin and so hollow. And if we move from dinner tables to live performance, experientially, we know something vital is added by being in the room where it happens. I don't have some advanced theory for this, but I can testify that I can remember key live performances in a totally different way than I remember recordings. Now at a theological level, I think this reflects the fact that I'm optimally designed for embodied interaction and therefore my whole person responds most fully when I'm there. We treasure such experiences because we carry them within our bodies, And as Michael Frost has suggested in his book, Incarnate, maybe that's why we say, you had to be there. How many times have you been to a performance and you've said, you just had to be there? Hence, I can still remember when my friend Elizabeth, this is not taken from her performance, but she played the song Home by Philip Phillips at an open day for my college, I can still remember it. I have a grainy recording of the event on my phone, but I never listen to it now because it doesn't begin to match the sweetness of the sound I experienced that day. I carry the memory somehow in my body. You just had to be there. I remember my friend Lauren's performance of the complete works of William Shakespeare, Abridged, an experience in which I laughed so hard I was sore the next day. It was like I'd done a Pilates class. I ran out of laughs. I carry that memory in my body and I carried the pain in my body for some days. But as a general rule, I will tell you now, I find comedy in live theatre so much funnier than any movie I've ever watched. I find stand-up comedy in the room, if you've ever experienced it, so much funnier. You just had to be there. I still remember watching... Sarah McLachlan perform her song Fear live, a song which she goes to another level with her voice that I can't really explain because I'm not a musicologist. And it sounds great on recording, but I can actually remember the moment hearing it live and wanting to praise God that he could make a voice, make that sound. You just had to be there. I didn't think it was possible. Within human communication, it's a good rule of thumb that the less of you that is present, the greater the potential for misinterpretation. This isn't a law, but words without gestures and facial expressions, words without tone of voice are susceptible to all sorts of malappropriations. Well, perhaps within live performance, the more of you that is there, it multiplies the enjoyment. For me, my experience, coheres with what I would say is a biblical account of embodiment. That's the first thing, the importance of the body. The second thing I wanna to talk tonight is about the democracy of creativity. Within the Christian doctrine of creation, there is a democracy of creativity. I wanna start by saying that in my time working with artists, there was a noticeable trope that some people liked to adopt with them, which was the tendency to treat creatives as their own special class, like they're space aliens approach with caution all that kind of stuff. There was a desire to be helpful so that we would actually understand what it's like to have to choreograph a dance piece, to have to write a piece of music, to have to work on a drama production. I understood that we were trying to understand them in all their unique idiosyncrasies, but it actually does them a disservice because it distances them from us further and they don't need any more distancing from us. They actually want to know us and they want us to know them. And it ignores the fact that creatives are just people and all people sit on a spectrum of creativity. Why would I say that? One of the central planks of the Christian doctrine of creation is that all human beings are made in the image of God. All, not just the king, which is how the ancient world saw it, not just the nobles, not just the men. There are so many implications that flow from this one fact at the start of the Christian storyline, which is that all human beings bear the royal image of God. You've never met someone who isn't a king or a queen in God's world. And part of the implications of human beings being in the image of their creator is that they are called to image him by being creative themselves. Contrary to popular perception, the Genesis narratives do not picture human beings placed within a static world where there is nothing left to do. Andy Crouch tells the joke that a lot of people imagine that what God said to Adam was, okay, Adam, I've made a beautiful garden. Don't touch anything and look out for snakes. But that's not what God did. What God did is he invited human beings into a world that he wanted them to work and take care of it. He wanted them to have dominion, not in a way that would crush the earth, but would actually unfold its potentials. The world in which human beings are placed into is a good world filled with potential that we are then invited to uncover. We're invited to take sound and make music. We're invited to take words and make poetry. We're invited to take our bodies and to craft performance. We're invited to work the earth and bring forth fruits. We're invited to build. We're invited to paint part of being in the image of God is that we are invited to be culture makers and culture making can be anything from making a song, an omelet, a building or a dance. Human beings are meant to make something of the world. Within Christian theology, human beings are invited to be makers under the guidance of the maker such that when we make something beautiful, God's not like, what did you do that for? But rather awesome. I wanted you to combine those things together. I'm glad you're using your body that way. Hence, I speak of the democracy of creativity because being made in the image of God is not a blessing limited to the glorious and the great. The I want to make something of the world impulse resides in far more than an elite creative class. It's part of what it means to be human. Hence, I'm not saying tonight just that awesome live performance matters. I'm actually saying all live performance matters. This is why amateur theatre isn't a waste of time. It's why those seemingly endless dance concerts that my daughters took me to were not a waste of time, even though I must admit I sometimes thought it. It's why that poetry that you've only ever performed for like three people was not a waste of time. Because creativity is not a credential, it's a gift included within the package deal that is humanity. This is not to deny, by the way, that some people excel at things more than others, just as some people can swim, walk and run in exceptional fashions. Yet the presence of the extraordinary does not invalidate the ordinary. And even when we pay the big bucks and have those encounters with the extraordinary, the Christian story says it's still good for you to join in. To dance yourself and to watch others dance it's good to sing and watch others sing because we were all made for this and so part of the delight that we sit there and watch someone who is amazing at it is to sit there and go this is part of the joy of being human together in this life experiencing art performing art it's part of what it means to be human I recognize that such democratic creativity in a technological age no longer needs live performance in the same way because anybody I think presumably can kind of get their stuff up on Spotify, there's at least enough podcasts to last for eternity. But I still think that this notion of live performance is where we most frequently encounter the amateurs and the professionals, the ordinary and the extraordinary. And I still think it's where art is at its best when that is the mode that it is meant to be delivered in. The democracy of creativity and the fact that is a result of image bearing means that art requires no justification. I take that line from the Christian art theorist, a guy called Hans Ruckmarker. He said, because making and creating is weaved into the fabric of all humanity, we don't need a reason to do art. This is how he said it. Art is not a religion, nor an activity relegated to a chosen few, nor a mere worldly superfluous affair. None of these views of art does justice to the creativity with which God has endowed man. It is the ability to make something beautiful as well as useful. Just as God made the world beautiful and said, it is good. Art as such needs no justification. I didn't include this, but I'll go on. He says, God's creatures require no justification. God has given them their value by including them in the totality of his creation. In the same way, our personal human qualities and activities need no justification. To love is indeed a command of God, but a justification of it is not given. To marry, to praise the Lord, to till the ground, to prepare meals, to talk, to feel, to think. All need no apology within the context of hallowed be thy name. They will be done. In the same way, art needs no justification. It is meaningful in itself, not only as an evangelistic tool or to serve a practical purpose or to be didactic. The live performance matters because we were made to live embodied lives that make something of the world. And that's part of it. Finally, live performance matters because of the goal of community. The Christian doctrine of creation does not breathe an individualist vision of persons. The first negative comment in the Bible is the statement, it is not good for the man to be alone. Up until that point, everything has been good. And it's an interesting comment, isn't it? Because Adam isn't alone technically, he's got God. But you see, all those people who sit there and go, all you need is God, haven't read their Bibles. Because the Bible says in chapter 2 that we weren't just made for him, but we were made for one another. And indeed from that flows a vision throughout the whole of the scriptures where God blesses and endorses human community as a crucial part of his purposes for the world. And so within the scriptural imagination, humanity and community becomes the ideal and the goal for a good and flourishing life. There simply is no individualist paradise, even though I sometimes dream about it. The goal is always a community orientation, large weddings, big meals, crowds, multitudes, children playing in the street, cities rebuilt and protected so that parties can be thrown. Now this affords me an opportunity to share one of the stranger live performance experiences of my life and for this moment, I will need to take a detour into popular culture. In July 2011, I saw Take That in Concert. (laughs) This is probably not who James and uh, Lindell were uh, expecting me to reference in this particularly important and serious lecture series, Give Me a Moment. Take That, for those of you who don't know, is a British boy band that went massive in the 1990s and in the UK they never stopped being massive. I do not like their music at all. But in July 2011, I was staying with friends in London for an academic conference and my friend said to me, and I quote, you can stay for free, but we ask one thing from you, you've got to come with us to take that concert. At that point, I thought maybe I will just stay in a hotel, (laughs) but I sucked it up and I said, I'll come, I'll come. I know like one song, but it'll be a long night, but let's see how we go. When I arrived in London, it dawned on me that I didn't actually understand how popular take that is in the UK. This is like way past their heyday, folks. They're not releasing music that's storming the charts. But in the UK, these boys are regarded as something akin to gods amongst men. They were playing Wembley Stadium, which when it's set up for a concert, holds 90,000 people. They sold out Wembley eight times which means they sold 700,000 tickets for one tour in one city. You need that perspective because when I went to the show, I was in this general admission area somewhere on the hallowed turf of Wembley, and I'm surrounded by many women (laughs) and some men living the greatest night of their life. (laughs) And there I am in a crowd of 90,000 people and 89,999 of them are like, this is the best. And here is all I'll say. I had a great night. I still don't like their music. But somehow being in the middle of a live performance where the whole crowd just loves it, Unbelievably infectious. It feels exactly what music is meant to do. To gather people together, to sing, to celebrate, to just exult in what it is to be a person. To gather for joy, for lament, from the campfire sing-along to the small drama performance with an audience through to the stadium rock concert, live performance just demands that you do it with others. We don't even want to watch movies alone when we go to the cinema. I don't know if you've ever done that. It's a really weird experience. You go there and sit there and go, I saw Top Gun Maverick on my own. And you go, it was really weird. (laughs) I could hear all my chewing. You know, like it was just the Christian doctrine of creation tells us something about why live performance matters to us because communicates the importance of the body, the democracy of creativity, and the goal of community. And each of those ideas clarifies why the life performance matters so much. Being in the room where it happens, together with others, experiencing people use their gifts, it's a celebration of what it means to be human in God's good world. Which leaves me with one final piece. What is the place of technology in such a world? The talk was stage or stream, which inevitably raises the question of technology. My starting point, and you need to understand this, is that technology is amazing. I might dislike parts of the internet, but I don't want to get rid of it. I subscribe to multiple streaming services. I have a Spotify account. I'm reading this talk off an iPad. I have a smartphone. I'm not a primitivist. But I do know this, technology advertises its benefits, but it hides its risks. And in the case of artistic performance, what you notice is that technology enables access, but it tends to create distance. A weird phenomenon, isn't it? It enables access, but it tends to create distance, because it enables convenience, but at the expense of relationship. So Andy Crouch, in his wonderful new book, "The Life We're Looking for," says, "My life is full of convenience. It is full of transaction, at its best, a mutually beneficial exchange of value, a kind of arm's-length, benign use of one another for our own ends, but it is not full of contemplation. It is often efficient but it is lonely. What a haunting statement about the modern world. Often efficient, but it is lonely. With regard to technology, I I sometimes think of what the psychiatrist Rollo May once wrote when he said, Technology is the knack for so arranging the world that we do not experience it." it. Reminds me of Marshall McLuhan's quote, too We shape our tools, and then our tools shape us. Technology means I can see the live sporting game, And ends up keeping me from ever seeing the live sporting game. The shaping of technology even now affects the enjoyment of the live performance. For those of you who have ever been to a concert in the last five to ten years, this ubiquitous phenomenon where someone will experience the live performance but sit there and go, I've got to record it so I'll watch the whole thing on a screen. You're there and yet you're not there. The live performance is something worth putting your phone down for (laughs) the live performance captures something that the phone can't about art and about who we are the joy of being with one another face to face celebrating our gifts and the things we make of this good world is such an experience useful yes but that's another lecture This one has been about the fact that we were made to enjoy and participate in performances in the flesh. And this needs no justification. I close with a quote from Fujimura again. The essence of humanity under God is not just utility and practical applications. The essence of humanity may be in what we deem to be useless, but essential. Thank you. (laughs)
0: Well, thank you so much, Mark. I was uh, furiously writing notes. I don't know if anyone else uh, has that habit of um, having to write to concentrate, but uh, I couldn't help but be uh, just struck by many of the things which you were talking about. And it took me back to one thing in particular, a conversation I had with, actually, uh, my aunt-in-law, who went to the middle of Australia, went to see all the beautiful sights. She was getting out her camera to take lots of pictures, as you do, and the Aboriginal people who live there said, no, don't take any pictures. We don't want you to take any pictures. He said, oh, why not? So, said, because we just want you to remember what you've seen, and I don't know about you, but we all know that to be true, that your memory of that is so much greater than the picture, mm. and you, know, you go around to someone's slideshow, and they, you watch all their slides, and you go, boring, 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 <laughs> not for them, they go, it was fantastic. I was there. I saw yeah. it was a huge, took the whole. Yeah. But on the phone, you just don't, you don't capture it. And I love that, that idea of, you know, the embodiment of our experience of the beauty of the world, but also the beauty of the performance, the beauty of being and that, that thing with the camera at the concert. Has anyone done that and then gone and watched their camera for two hours? <laughs> oh, that was fantastic. That was fantastic. No, we don't do that why don't we just enjoy the moment enjoy being there i thought that's fantastic and then when you were talking about the democracy of creativity what struck me about that was i i struggle with the fact that i have two kids with autism who don't necessarily meet the standards of the world but they are incredibly creative because when it comes to creativity they see the world in a completely different Mm -hmm. way and there's a value in that from the theological perspective of God, the creator, calling us to be creators as well. And if I can just share one last story about the sense of community. And so last week's speaker, Greg Clark, and I were at a concert in <laughs> 1992, and uh, yeah, we're I'm that old. <laughs> and uh, at, the, at this concert, um, it was uh, a band called Sonic Youth. Oh. Now, you can talk about Take That, but I'm going to talk about (laughs) Sonic Youth. Um, uh, Just to say- Today FM to Triple J, but that's that's, (laughs) okay. This particular concert, I could not determine a single note. I had no idea what they were playing. It was absolute noise the whole time. So I'm not a fan of Sonic Youth, but when I was in that crowd, there was 500,000 people, Coogee Bay Hotel. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we, it's one of those crowds where you're just moving to this music well, this noise, and I can remember it you know, so viscerally, actually, not just visually, but like my whole body, and losing the person who was with us who was a bit shorter than me and getting lost in the mosh pit. And, but that experience, it wasn't actually about the music. It was about being there. And the community that was all in that experience together. Yeah. So those th- those I really resonated with those three points Great. which you're making. So you. thank you, thank you so much, Mark. As no I said trouble. at the beginning, always makes me think of things in a different way and and see the world anew and just what God is doing. So really, really appreciate the way you've shared with us. So can we all just thank Mark? For Pleasure. His thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of our Founders Lecture Series. For more information about Innerborough school and community, visit www.innerborough.newsouthwales.edu.au and hit follow on the Innerborough podcast channel for a range of upcoming content.